you know, we're holding these monthly calls, we're sending tailored reporting and insights to really drive adoption. But I think when you reframe, and this is why we kind of cut through to that store leader layer, because at the end of the day, that's where the magic happens. Welcome to Action This, practical wisdom from experienced management pros, a podcast series featuring a stacked roster of industry guests dishing about what it really takes for brands to thrive. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Action This podcast. My name is Zach Hamilton. As you know, I'm your host, and I am the Chief Experience and Strategy Officer here at Chatter Research. And I'm really excited about uh, today's episode. You know, very rarely do you run into someone who has the same level, if not more passionate, about um, traditional brick and mortar retail. And uh, our guest today, uh, Ray Riley, uh, probably has more passion and more love um, about retail. So really excited to hear about his journey uh, from working on the front lines, like many of us had progressing uh, in, into his retail career, and now um, the founder and CEO of Progress Retail. But before um, we chat with Ray, let me tell you a little bit more about him. Um, Ray is the CEO of Progress Retail, a retail operations platform making multi-store operations easier, decreasing employees' time to productivity, and driving store transaction values higher. Ray is a career-long retail operator with various experience and roles in multiple retail categories. Based in Chicago, Ray is passionate about physical retail and how technology is designed and implemented with respect to the nuance of stores and evolving role of store teams. Ray, welcome to the Action This podcast. Thanks, Zach. It's awesome to be here. Um, I'm curious, just being Chicago-based, are you dealing more towards the White Sox or the Cubs? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, my uh, father's parents were like somewhat Northsiders. My mother's parents were Southsiders. So growing up, it was always uh, a split house. Um, you know, obviously during the 90s, you know, especially that steroid era, I mean, it was hard not to be a Cubs fan and just, you know, sort of see Sammy Sosa, um, you know, have all those bombs out of the park. But, you know, to be honest with you, I live um, I live in the Loop, uh, so it's easier just to get down to Sox Park. Um, so and my sister lives in the South Loop, so we go to games occasionally. Um, so I guess if I had to pick, you know, I, I'm probably a little closer to Sox these days. Yeah. And, it, and is it just based on the ease of getting there and, the, you know, from an experience standpoint or you're you are a house divided? So let's just pick one. Yeah, you know, it could easily segue into our retail chat. I mean, I think it's a convenience factor. You know, it's really it's that you've got Reggie's bar there on the south side that even has a free shuttle. It'll just take you right to the park um, and it's easier to get drinks, get out of your seat, you know, and get home. Um, getting up to Wrigley is a, you know, it's an ordeal. Um, and, you know, especially depending on the night or it's it, a lot going on around there too. So, yeah, that's kind of how we are with, with, uh, the teams here in Atlanta. I mean, our family is a diehard Atlanta United MLS, um, mm-hmm. you know, we're season ticket holders, but you know, we love to, to catch a, a Braves game once or twice a year, but again, it's about that experience, right? Because the Braves, the new stadium is is right on the junction of 285 and 75. And as much as everyone would say, oh, wow, that's really convenient, it's it's actually pretty terrible uh, because that's one of the busiest intersections. There's not great public transportation. Um, there's always construction on 75. Uh, and so it's a nightmare. And for, for us, it is, man, why spend 45 minutes to an hour in the car 
when we can just have an incredible experience on our 65 inch TV at home and watch well, the game. That's just it. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and here in Chicago, we're having that same battle with the uh, Bears and Soldier Field and all that. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I think downtown for a lot of these venues made a lot of sense at a certain point in time. And, you know, the way transit has evolved just has made it sometimes more challenging. Yeah. And, and this is a really good kind of uh, segue into our conversation about retail. But the last thing is, you know, Arthur Blank, as you know, right, owns the Falcons. He owns Atlanta United, of course, Home Depot. We all recognize him. And I was listening to an interview of his. It was about two two or three years ago when they started, you know, to, to build Mercedes-Benz Stadium. And he said, look, I'm not competing with other sports franchises for our fan base. Mm. I'm I'm competing with the convenience of watching the game at home. Mm. And how do I pull those fans in the stadium and make it just an incredible experience so that they will be willing to maybe sacrifice convenience a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think it's so true of retail, right? So before we get in and, and a little bit deeper on the chat, right, I'd love just to understand, like, tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, about your career starting off in retail, talk about your multiple roles and and then why you decided to to start and found Progress Retail. Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, like you mentioned in the intro, um, I started out on the shop floor. So my first job was Really, after I realized my college basketball uh, career was probably not going to pan out, I was like, well, I think I need to get a job to sort of just afford school. My, my parents were college professors, so got a job selling cell phones. And, you know, thankfully I did because I figured out pretty quickly, like at a young age, relatively speaking, like, you know, sort of where maybe I had a skill set or at least I was able to apply it. Um, so very quickly, though, you know, ended up actually starting my first company, which was um, in uh, wholesale, so you know, just a function off of retail um, in cell phones, parts, and accessories. Ended up then partnering up um, with an individual, and we started opening up uh, wireless retail stores. So you know, I kind of went from you know frontline associate to store leader to now like doing a whole host of things, right? In in your own business. Um, Fast forwarding, though, I then, you know, ended up um, sort of getting fast tracked into a head of stores role for Michael Hill, which is a, a global jewelry chain out of Australia with a couple hundred stores globally, um, about roughly 100 in Canada. Um, and we had a small presence in top grade malls like Mall of America, Roosevelt Field, et cetera, uh, here in the U.S. And so that was really where I got, you know, um, I think a very, very, very deep, not only appreciation, but sort of education in you know, retail management operations, et cetera. So, you know, following that, and this was about 2016, a lot of change in that business, but, you know, just started to see really the 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 inundation of technology into stores and, and oftentimes how poorly uh, it was executed or implemented. And so I wanted to move into retail tech. Um, I, I was really interested in how that was how that was intersecting with what has been, you know, a very analog environment, uh, you know, a retail store for, you know, practically um, 100 years. And so um, I actually met uh, uh, my then business partner who sort of founded uh, the original business called People in Progress, which was a retail training organization. And we wanted to build out this platform um, that not only could provide all of this dynamic learning and education, but also now through all the technology we've built over the last handful of years, really effectively streamline and automate elements of store operations to, as we said in the introduction, 
make retail easier. That's awesome. I'm really, I'm, I'm really curious, Ray. You know, I've had many jobs um, growing up as well, being in the front line of retail, and you know, I, I still maintain this really strong position that everyone at some point in their life, and and hopefully through high school or college, should work retail or service, right? Because you just you gain so many skills. Um, and customer service and really just for life. But I'm curious in your mind, when you work the front line of, of retail selling cell phones, what would you say is like the greatest lesson learned? Yeah, I think, I think you know, boy, there's so many and I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I, 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 I think, you know, it's very easy to, to sense a level of awareness and empathy that someone has based on their work experience. You know, I mean, in retail, you come across so many different types of people, obviously. And, you know, in wireless retail, I mean, granted, I, I then sort of was in the other end of the spectrum, which was more luxury and, and fine jewelry. So you're seeing all different types of people there as well. But I think that, you know, one of the greatest lessons learned, I think, just on the humanity front is, you know, an appreciation and understanding and a sense of empathy for various groups of people that you would may not otherwise ever encounter. Um, and sort of the offshoot lessons from that, I think, are so uh, so so transformational as it relates to, you know, how that impacts how you look at finance or how that you know impacts how you look at other other elements of life and work. Um, so that would sort of be maybe uh, a bit more of like an abstract one. Um, but I think you know just the the level of um, time management, the level of um, context switching that occurs in working in a store environment. Um, I mean, you've got a delivery going on. Meanwhile, you have a maintenance person in the back. Meanwhile, you have an angry customer. And meanwhile, you're closing a sale at the same time. So it's it's um, there's very few, um, you know, roles. And a lot of these work from home folks, um, you know, they have never worked in retail. I mean, it's it's uh, yeah, it's 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 definitely um, significant. The difference. Yeah. And then so let's fast forward. Right. Head of stores for for Michael, Michael Hill, luxury jewelry you know, 100 stores plus, what would you say was like your greatest challenge and lesson learned, you know, being in that role? Because now mm. you go from being that frontline individual contributor and along the way, right? You've had those different changes in roles, but now you're leading 100 stores, not for sure how many employees, but probably over a thousand employees. Uh, and now you're trying to deliver on the PL. Like what were some of your greatest lessons learned yeah, and, and just to clarify, I had I had a much smaller portfolio. I had about a dozen stores um, in the U.S. Um, the Canadian business was sort of a uh, separate entity in, in a way. Um, but in terms of the U.S. business, yeah, look, I mean, we had you know probably roughly a hundred employees all up. Um, but I think that you know the challenge with that business was we were really trying to cut through in the U.S. and you know in uh, jewelry retail, uh, particularly in the specialty category in the U.S. I mean, you've got the behemoth of Signet. You know, with about 4,500 doors across K Zales, um, you know, and and the Jared and the rest of it. So, you know, you don't have that marketing budget. You have great sites. We invest a lot into you know real estate and fit outs, but you know, it's it's an uphill battle. And you know, from my perspective, it was managing a portfolio as far west as Mall of America, as far east as Roosevelt Field in Long Island. So it's a big travel region as well. Um, so, you know, retail is all about talent. So it's about, you know, it's getting the, spending the right time in those markets, 
uh, nurturing and developing, um, you know, the talent that you're going to be able to attract and develop and promote. Um, and so that's, you know, in terms of like one of the most controllable things, I mean, that's just always, that's the endless pursuit of retail. Um, and, you know, I think when, when you keep your foot on that gas pedal, good things happen um, and you avoid a lot of, uh, you know, negative things that can happen, you know, that can influence um, your operation. So, um, yeah, that would be probably my answer there. Yeah, I think that's great insight. I, I'm curious in your mind, you know, when you think about brand challenges um, and when you think about how do we close the experience gap between here's what our brand promises, here's what we're promising our customers on, here's here's a service that they will receive, here's what they can expect, to how well are we really executing it through our talent, right? The war for talent on the front line and I always see there's like this this disconnect between the experience leader for the organization and the operations leader. It always yep. seems like it's almost like oil and water um, for those colleagues. Why why do you think that it's hard to get the experience leader and the operations leader on the same page and really rowing in the same boat? Yeah, I, that's a really interesting insight, and I think that. I'll make a general statement, obviously, every situation is sort of unique, but I, th I think that that experience leader uh, oftentimes sometimes lacks that practical on the floor. They've clocked in, they've gotten on their knees, they've turned the gate, they've disarmed the alarm kind of thing, you know, like I think that sometimes the practicalness can be lost uh, on, on, on that cohort of individuals. Um, and so, so, but, but, you know, conversely, that's not that I'm siding with the operator. I think the operator sometimes there's a, there can be a stubbornness to, and we, and we see this all the time, you know, there, there can be a stubbornness to reevaluate the way things have been done. And so you kind of have those, you get those two worlds colliding and then sometimes nothing happens, right? Which I think is, is, is the greatest sin. Um, that's a bit of a general statement there. So I, I, I feel that, you know, that that can be a big factor. Um, and, and we see this all the time with, with any type of change, you know, that, that goes in. Um, you know, are, are we willing, particularly on the operation side, like to 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 take a step back and say, all right, we're going to just we're going to trial a different way of going about this, implementing X, Y, Z, whatever. And if it's three months, it's three months. And, you know, let's just let's just, you know, track measure uh, and, and iterate accordingly. We they opt spoke, they get on this hamster wheel and it's very difficult to get off. And and I think that that just stalls. Obviously, that stalls innovation, that stalls change. Um, and, and, you know, you can be left behind quite quickly. I think it's so well said. I mean, I, you know, I started out in my career before I became the experiential leader at Aaron's where, you know, I started out in the field and I, and I am so thankful that that was my progress into becoming the head of experience because I knew just to your point, what is the daily multitasking? So not only am I handling multiple things, I also have employees that are calling out sick for the day. I'm trying to figure out, you know, when to schedule lunches, all these things. And oh, by the way, there's, there's 15 different, you know, top priorities coming from the ivory tower that I've got to complete today in my four walls as well. And so I really learned, hey, if I wanted to pull this lever operationally, you know, I knew if I was pulling this this experience lever as a head of experience, I knew to expect lever A, B, and C. And how was I going to account for that on the experience side as well? Yeah. 
Right. And well, so I, I always, when I, when I work with, with experienced leaders, I always ask them, how much time are you spending um, doing two things? One, experiencing your own brand as a consumer and two, experiencing the day of the life um, of your frontline team. What is it that they're actually going through uh, and how, how do you envision the experience to be delivered and what is reality into the store? Because it, it's, and you know this, it's not that the talent doesn't want to deliver a great experience, mm. but when you're being pulled in 50 different directions, they have to prioritize, what am I going to do? Totally. Uh, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And, and, and yeah, I love that about your experience and how that's, how that influenced you because um, that's, I, we're seeing that more and more, but for a long period, like the last, let's call it maybe 10 years, there was just a lot of these, you know, brand agencies getting, getting into retail and, you know, um, a lot of uh, things that sound delightful in theory, but just, you know, uh, not always in practice. So, you know, that's, uh, that's awesome. Yeah, I think the other piece too, if you think about retails, now it's, you know, it's omni-channel, that's the buzzword. Mm. Uh, and so the experience leader has to think about the customer journey um, from an omni-channel perspective where that operational leader, they're just really focused on what's my part of the customer journey, which is what happens in my four walls. Sure. And so that's where I think a significant friction is between um you know the 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 experienced leader and the operational leader is the omnichannel versus my four walls, and yeah, I don't really look at how does it account the entire journey. Yeah, that's been that's been. I mean, I definitely heard that for so long. I mean, have you seen that sort of starting to shift a little bit with new new tools, new new data sets, new reporting, and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, I, look, I think the sh I think the shift has started to happen. As we think about, you know, buy online, pick up curbside, right? right. So, so there's multiple customer touch points. Um, I think there, the the technologies are are really starting to um, force operators to be more omni-channel. When you think about like the Home Depot experience, right? I can go online, I can try and I can check the inventory at my local store. And now that is a determining factor if I go in and, and make that purchase. But what happens if if it's not there? Right. Right. So I think there's there's technologies that can be great enablers, but can also drive extreme friction if shelves aren't stocked, um, if operationally we cannot we we don't execute. And then you think about the determining factors on well, how well can we execute? Do we have the right labor model? Do we have this the staffing model? What does it all look like, right? So it's that it's that experience system that I talk about. Yeah. I think technology plays a key role in becoming an enabler. But to your point that you mentioned a few minutes ago, with our talent, what does change management look like? Mm, totally. How, because we're changing their behavior if we want them to adopt a new technology, for example. Yep. So, so how do you drive that change management? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's, an, it's an endless pursuit. And obviously for us, you know, being a partner or vendor side, you know, there, we have a pretty thorough um, and it's always changing, you know, implementation and onboarding process. You know, we're, we're on calls with store leaders, you know, we're, we're, we're really, you know, we're holding these monthly calls. We're sending, you know, tailored reporting and insights to really drive um, adoption. But I think, you know, when, 
when you know when you reframe and this is why we kind of cut through to that store leader layer because at the end of the day that's where the magic happens um you know we can be as theoretical with multi-site leaders or heads of stores as we want but for when we can really you know cut through and and, and you know really um set this up for store leaders to understand how this is going to make their lives easier like that's that's the goal here it's make store management easier when you're off and you're getting calls in your store that's you, you your store has not been set up for success now obviously that's not 100 the store leader's uh, responsibility but it's largely i mean and so how can we to use your word enablement you know the two words we use at progress retail exclusively are enablement and empowerment so how do we, how can we enable you with a, the right set of tools um, designed for retail that can streamline and automate elements of your daily operations but then also how can we empower not only yourself as a store leader but your associates to self-learn to to self-coach to develop in the role faster so that that's not a huge part of your day as it has been and you know there's not to derail what we're talking about but like the the, the most obvious and glaring um, example of this is the way retail teams in 2022 are onboarded and inducted in as new hires. I mean, I'm talking about a folder with Word docs and PDFs and PowerPoints and random things, and they're checking it off on an Excel spreadsheet that they've done it. Like that alone, I mean, how much time does that take every store leader to do redundantly, to manage? Multiply that by a workforce of, you know, maybe they're hiring two new people a month. Um, you know, like that's just unsustainable. Yeah, it's, it, 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 I still laugh about, you know, retailers who are like, hey, if you think about the onboarding, they're still taking those same shitty LMS classes that that retail employee was taking 10 years ago when we onboarded them. And I'm thinking to myself, your brand mission has obviously changed because of the disruption of retail. Um, I think things have probably changed inside the four walls from the last 10 years. Yeah. And and the workforce has changed, totally. right? Like we continue to get our, our workforce, if you, especially in retail, it's not like you're aging out, like you're, you're continuously getting younger because now, you know, you continually get that blend of high school, college students, all the way up to those folks who maybe have retired. Yep. And now they're your door greeters at Walmart, right? Where it's like, Hey, I can come in and greet for a couple hours a day, every day, just Sure. to get me out of the house. And so how do you learn? I want to go back to enablement and empowerment, right? When you think about the role of the experienced leader, what role do they play in enablement and empowerment of the front line? Uh, I, I, think, I think a massive one, because if anything, they should be that key partner to the operators in the sense that, or the operations folks, because, you know, the, the operations folks, I think there's a tendency to sort of just have like ticks the, tick the box solutions. Like to your point, we've got that 10 year old learning module we're still using. We're, well, at least we've got something right. And then I can get back on my hamster wheel, you know, of day to day ops. Uh, that experience leader ideally should be think should be rethinking. Well, OK, what if we transformed these assets into, you know, videos uh, or what if we um, selected a top store leader to do you know every two weeks when we release new product to do a little product knowledge video or something like that like they should be rethinking ways to um, engage the the front line where they have all of these associates that you know can be leveraged um, they should be thinking about well what tools do we need to best uh, deliver this experience you know so is that legacy learning tool effective the answer is unequivocally no um, you know it, 
do we need to rethink how you know store email it has become just an absolute bottomless abyss you know in terms of um you know uh messaging in and impact you know unrealized so i i that's that's really i think my view i think it's a it's a powerful role to really think you know how do we need to uh not only delight you know external customers how do we need to delight internal uh customers as as employees yeah i love that I love let's let's switch gears a little bit you know i get this question every day i'm sure you do too um in your mind what's the future of retail mm. So, I mean, yeah, so many ways to answer it, right? I mean, like on the commerce side, obviously, which which our product's not super focused. I mean, at this stage, you know, I, I, I there's gonna be a continued push towards convenience. Um, and but I but, but convenience within reason. I mean, obviously, all of these delivery apps and things like that, um, you know, fifteen minute, seven minute, whatever um, delivery, I, I I think that that's gonna mellow out here. Um, but, you know, things that can be and should be automated in retail will continue to be so. So, that checkout experience in a in even a lower transactional retail environment um, will will continue to be largely automated. Talent will continue to shift, and and this is where obviously we're very focused and where we're very interested is what does the future retail labor model look like, right? And um, physical stores certainly aren't going anywhere, but their utility is shifting, and the teams that are fundamentally uh, running them. Um, their utility is shifting slightly as well, depending on the category. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, um, uh, a push towards convenience, but also, you know, a push towards more automation um, in how stores run, uh, more, um, I think, highly skilled uh, labor, I, I, I would say, particularly at, at a leadership level. And that's going to require, you know, more tools, uh, more enablement and empowerment, really, of, of stores and store teams. Chatter by Stingray proudly presents Action This. Let's have a chat. Visit chatterresearch.com to try out our online feedback demo and experience the chatter effect. In your mind, you know, everyone talks about convenience and convenience being, you know, a key driver of the retail experience. How do you define convenience? Mm. Being able to get, well, I think one definition for me is just being able to get more done with less, you know? And so when I think back to, you know, particularly the pandemic, um, I mean, I'm not much of a shopper, full stop. I'm probably not dissimilar from most guys in my uh, age demographic. But, you know, for me, um, living in a city, living in downtown Chicago, I mean, I frequently went to Target because I just knew I could, like, get in, get what I needed, get out. Didn't really care if I was paying a little more for this or that. Like, it was just, you know... I'm in and I'm out. And so I think that that gravitational shift towards one-stop shopping obviously was reflected in Target's, uh, you know, uh, 2021 results. Um, but I also think the trend, you know, uh, extended past that when, you know, you think of, and use, just using Target as an example, you know, them introducing Ulta and them introducing Apple. And so I think that, you know, that whole vision of retail town square is very powerful. Um, in whatever form it looks like for consumers to, you know, everyone's so conscious about their their time, their calendars these days. And so being able to do more with less, I think, is, an, is, a, is a massive, uh, uh, you know, function of convenience. Yeah. I, I'm curious, too, when you think through this, right, you're a previous operator, 
you know, when you think about experience programs today, experiential leaders and, and brands are obsessed with the net promoter score, hmm. right? How likely are you to recommend us to a friend or family member? And, you know, I can have a conversation on this all day. Uh, I, I, it's not that I don't think the scores is a bad benchmark. I just think, you know, we have bastardized the NPS as experienced professionals because instead of truly taking action on, 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 uh, customer frictions, we just gamify in order to increase our score. I'm curious if you think about convenience, right? Convenience is, is the new retail. Why are brands not asking how convenient was your experience today? It's that's a great question. I mean, did, I'm sure, and you saw the thing on um, this is what a couple of weeks ago about Zappos, the the um, attendee that had the person on the call for like what was it like eight or nine hours or something like, and they were praising that internally because one of their benchmarks is the longer we have you on a call, you know, the more we've helped you or something like that, right? So it's almost like an internal vanity metric um, that. I don't think is aligned with customer benefits, but so, but your point about NPS, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I feel, you know, NPS when it's, it's just, it's just an indicator. Um, it's like MBTI and all of these personality profile things. I mean, it's, it's, you can take one of them, but you don't take one of them, you know, hook, line and sinker. I think that there's an array of, uh, metrics that folks should be looking at. So, um, I'd, yeah, I'd love to, I, I, I don't have an answer for why brands aren't doing that. I, I think it's a, I think it would be a great place to start. Um, I think it depends on the category. You know, I think that like, when you look at like optical, I think that there's opportunities. Um, we work with some optical retailers, you know, I think that there's an opportunity to make that experience more uh, convenient, um, you know, but then I think about, you know, Gucci and it's like, well, is that what the consumer's after? Um, you know, so I, I, I think it's, I think each brand needs to be looking at, yeah, to your point though, where is their friction and, and what are you doing about it? Like how, yeah. how, are you, how are you optimizing? Yeah. And if you think about the greatest retail friction, right, I think retail has experienced the greatest disruption or friction in the last couple of years. Um, and of course, right. The pandemic it's, it's stolen the headlines of the greatest disruptor that I think retail's ever seen. I think for the, in my lifetime, you know, I'm, I'm 38. I only see retail stores typically close on on Christmas and Thanksgiving. And so for a period of time, all retail came to a halt, just like every yeah. other business. Um, but in your mind, what else is disrupting retail outside the pandemic, right? We're coming on the backside of the pandemic. I mean, yeah, everyone can argue where we're at with the pandemic. But if you think about, you know, mandates um, winding down and, and we're returning to shopping, we're on the yeah. backside of this. So outside of the pandemic, what are the other great disruptors of retail? You know, and, and it's, and it's difficult to say like what, what's pandemic induced or not. I mean, you know, now obviously the whole economic, uh, situation is certainly, um, you know, somewhat pandemic induced, but was going on before the pandemic as well. And so you have a lot of these, and, and, you know, to be honest with you, like, um, the, the whole, and I post a lot about this on LinkedIn and Twitter and all that, like, you know, I'm, I'm shocked at whoever sold this dream of DTC. Like, you know, it, it's, it's just a new word for retail, I guess. I mean, like, I just, I, I, I'm amazed when, you know, people refer to like their brands as like, as if this is like a new invention, you know, <laughs> um, when in reality, you know, they're, they're, they're just retailers. Um, and so, 
I think, you know, having said that, that there are a lot of these brands, you know, that have hundreds, if not thousands of employees that are struggling, you know, um, to get profitable, are opening a lot of stores, um, have a concentrated amount of talent that work for them. You know, what happens when, you know, what happens when the money runs out for some of these brands is sort of what I what I kind of think about and, and what impact does that have on the talent and where do these folks then go? And so um, I, I look at that, I mean, you know, obviously there's easy answers like the supply chain issues and environment and things like that that are, are going are gonna to continue to have a massive, um, you know, impact on the industry. But I just look at particularly the, the glut of these, you know, DTC darlings you could refer to them as and, you know, what, what happens to these brands? Do they get sold off to, you know, private equity? El Catterton makes a scoop on a few of them. Um, but what then happens to, you know, the state of their products, the state of their teams? Um, that's sort of what I'm, I, I'm just, yeah, it's top of mind for me this week. Yeah, I think the other thing for me too is like consumer behavior is mm -hmm. a significant disruptor to retail, right? Because I really see retail as a platform now because there's so many ways that you can engage with a specific brand. And you think about the heightened, um, you know, when you think about social selling, what does that look like when you think about TikTok and all these other social media platforms? What's the metaverse going to do, right? How does that disrupt um, yeah. consumer behavior? I really see disruption as just consumer behavior. How are we adapting to, to new ways of, of, of engaging with a specific brand? Um, and how do we put a clear strategy around what are the channels that we know that we need to own as that retailer? We can't own them all. We can't mm -hmm. own that entire platform uh, because there's always new, you know, social channels or, or ways to engage that are that are coming up. But what are those main channels that we know our customers behave in? We know that they're demanding to to engage with us there. How do we engage with them in their channel of choice? Um, with with our brain, and I think that leads me to the next question, really around why why are brands challenged with anticipating consumer behavior and how to adapt it into their retail strategy? Mm. And you know, I'm just thinking as a, as as a, as a previous operator, and you know, this is always I think a very simple answer is, um, you know, how often are executive teams in stores? like watching customers, you know, talking with customers. I I'm, I kind of have a very old school, you know, simple answer there. It's just like, if, if you get out beyond the focus groups, if you get out behind, beyond the surveys, um, if you listen to your teams in store, but also if you actually get into store and have those one-on-one -on -one conversations with your teams, um, you actually see how consumers are interacting with your brand. Um, that to me has always been the most valuable insight, you know, and 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 making that a regular part of like, you know, executive travel, not having these store visits be, you know, like dog and pony shows, like actually have them be quite, you know, actionable uh, in terms of, of of you know being in the in in the trenches. Yeah, I'm curious when when you were a, a retail leader before you start, you know, you got into the retail tech side of the world, you know, I think data, big data, can tell a great story on. Hey, consumer behavior is changing, right? We see, you know, this specific cohort of customers that are going online. We see this cohort that 
you know, convenience is, is optimal for them. So they buy online, pick up curbside, right? We don't see them in our stores anymore. And to me, the foundational kind of why this consumer, there's a consumer shift in behavior um, can be, you know, found through customer feedback, mm. right? Asking, you know, if we notice that there is a behavior change with this specific customer or customer cohort, and we ask them, you know, why really get into the feedback. And quite frankly, like I am shocked with the number of operators who don't dig into customer feedback, not the scores, right. not your ranker, true customer feedback to understand why. And so I'm curious in your mind as, as a retailer at heart um, and a former operator, what's the challenge um, for operators to really dig in to customer feedback and how can the customer experience professional aid in the operator diving deeper into feedback? It, it, I think it just has to become prioritized. Um, and I think that's the struggle right now for a lot of retail organizations is, and just from talking with them every day, I mean, they're so under-resourced. Um, a lot of them have still, you know, trimmed some tertiary, we could call them sort of departmental support in, in you know, their headquarters. And so they've taken on additional responsibilities. And so I think that, you know, um, I think that's a major issue. It's sort of that executive manager director level that a lot of them are just bogged down. But I also believe, and and as as living proof, I suppose as well, there's a tremendous amount. How how can we enable the store teams to collect and you know um, be able to sort of aggregate some of this valuable feedback? You know, what if that was you know. Um, you know, in the form of, you know, exchanging loyalty for a video interview or something like that. Like, I, I just think like there's so much opportunity um, within our stores that the gap between the headquarters and store uh, sometimes clouds. And so I, I look at it as say, well, we've got, you know, however many stores, however many team members in these stores, let's build out a program where we can actually empower them to um, to obtain this feedback at the coal face, you know, I think that that's a huge opportunity. Um, it doesn't have to sit always with, you know, at a at an actionable level at the at the uh, you know executive level. I think it's a really good point, right? Especially when we think about consistent execution and what the priorities are. You know, we we hear it all the time. Hey, I can go to this Walmart um, and and have an incredible experience. Then I can go to the Walmart two miles down the road. And it's a completely different experience. And you know as well as I do, it's probably the exact same multi-unit leader. Right. Right? Um, now, again, store managers are completely different. And I think that's where retailers continue to, to really just struggle. It's always been a struggle really around delivering consistent execution of the experience promise by those frontline retail employees, that, that frontline talent. In your mind, and or or what are you seeing that's fueling these major inconsistencies, and why can brands not solve this puzzle? I I see it changing rapidly, which is great, but I, I honestly think it's just it's broken ways of operating, you know. And and so let's talk about how these expectations are communicated, right? Um, are we using things like email? Or are we just using these, you know, where we have a part-timer who accidentally marks the email as red and, 
you know, then of course the team sort of misses maybe the directive or what they're supposed to do. Um, you know, what's the inspection process look like? Are these stores on six week visit cycles or, you know, or are they required to, you know, upload media or are they using some form of task execution tool to really be able to streamline and uh, have multi-site leaders inspect what they expect? Um, or is it just waiting to that six, eight, 12 week visit window where it's already too late and you know, you've got nothing to show for it. So I just, I just think it, it comes down to, you know, how, um, how simple and how effective is the expectation communicated? How then is there a mechanism by which to inspect the expectation remotely? Cause that's the world we live in. And what's then the, um, measurable impact, you know, on, on execution being, uh, done at a high level. Um, that's kind of how I, I look at a very simple sort of one, two, three uh, perspective. And let's face it, you know, the majority of retailers are still using uh, manual processes for a lot of this stuff. And that's, you're going to get, you're going to get what you, you're going to get out, what you get, what you get in, what you put in. Yeah. So well said. I think those, this kind of this last part of the chat, right? You've talked a lot about uh, enablement and empowerment of the, of the front line. And, and we're talking about, you know, outdated, you know, training processes and, and the role of the multi-unit leader and, and how can we de develop more, you know, consistent execution at the front line, especially with this war on talent. I'm curious, how's progress retail leading and enabling retailers with this learning and communications gap that really is fueling mm. this inconsistent um, delivery of great experiences? Yeah, I, I think on two fronts. So, you know, I, I love the term store communications because it's kind of become now a catch-all for everything from training initiatives to just updates to tasks. So our platform literally under those three pillars um, uh, executes that very effectively for retailers of all shapes and sizes. But on the other side, you know, the, where where we're quite different is we also provide a ton of uh, education. Uh, so we actually bundle a lot of deep um, and renowned retail education in the areas of sales and service experience, store management and leadership development. Because again, let's face it, most retailers, they they just don't go there. They do their policies and procedures. They do their point of sale training. They do their product knowledge. But at the end of the day, like, you know, how do you how do you demonstrate empathy? How do you actively listen? How how do you uh, suggest related products? How do you understand your own level of self awareness, confidence, et cetera, to recommend products that might be outside your personal budget? But it's not about you; it's about the customer. So there's there's so much that on the tr on the actual training content side um, that creates really transformational results when you get that in the hands of frontline teams where now all of a sudden they're no longer chained to their manager for development. So then you start to get the internal uh, succession planning metrics going, employee tenure increases, and all of those things become very good for not only employee experience, but op op ultimately customer experience. So it's the balance, to answer your question succinctly, it's the balance between the tools, which is the enablement, but also the actual um, learning experience in the form of content on the empowerment side that you know, that, that we're, um, we're, we're quite differentiated in. Yeah, when you think about this learning and empowerment piece, right, I, I consistently see um, as brands take a look at their cross-functional teams, especially with rolling out um, a new operational procedure and, and, you know, 
we want to measure that from experience side, but I, I often find the learning and development or the training and development leader, either the last one to have a seat at the table or no seat at the table at all. And they're mm. probably one of the most crucial, like I think one of the most crucial relationships in any organization should be learning and development and your experiential leader. Mm. Right. Because the experienced leader should play a critical role on how do we continue to iterate our learning and development process based on the feedback that we're getting on the on the front lines from our customers and our employees. Why do you think there's such a disconnect there, Ray? Yeah. And I, I, I think going back um, to an earlier comment, you know, I would say in 50 percent of our conversations where L&D um, has a seat at the table, they have no retail experience. So that's that I think that automatically sets up a very, dare I say, adversarial relationship internally between the operator and, you know, and, and the L&D person. Now, um, I think there's many ways to resolve that. I also think L&D in the retail industry, that person should ideally be grown out of the stores and then ultimately given, you know, some of the L&D practitioner um, education. But but I think that that sets up a bit of a challenge. And, and you know, I think when you were talking about rolling out a new procedure, you know, I, I did this presentation once at a conference. I mean, retail loves to launch, but how does it land? You know, and that's really, I think, getting back to these processes. I mean, we have a lot, you know, we see a lot of retailers when things change, it's a digital memo. It's an email with a PDF. Can't track that, can't measure that. Um, words don't teach, uh, you know, it's, it's so it really for us, I mean, a lot of this just boils down to the how. Um, retailers typically have the who in place. They know the what. Um, it's really about, well, how do we ultimately communicate and convey this um, in a way that we can measure and actually uh, you know, determine the level of impact? Yeah, I think we should just end there. It's It's been such a great chat. I um, I love, Ray, what, what you and the Progress Retail team are doing, especially around enablement and empowerment. For all of our listeners, thanks for hanging in on this chat. Uh, if you want to connect with Ray uh, to learn more about um, Progress Retail and how they continue to just enable and empower some of the most leading retail brands, feel free to, to jump over to his podcast page, on chatterresearch.com underneath resources you can click on uh raise handsome face and uh, we'll have all the details on how to get in touch with them uh, until the next episode having an incredible week and looking forward to chatting with you next time thanks for tuning in for more on consumer insights and experience the chatter effect visit chatterresearch.com